Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 14, The Red Death, Part 2. My name is George Bartley, and today I would like to welcome back our co-host, the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe. In the last episode, we began an examination of one of Poe's most masterful stories, The Mask of the Red Death. We discussed that the pestilence in the story is not specifically identified, but the main source for the disease was a report by Nathaniel P. Willis on a cholera party in Paris. In Poe's story, Prince Prospero has waited until half the kingdom has died from the pestilence. Then, along with his wealthy and influential friends, he isolates himself in a strangely built castle. If you've not listened to part one, you'll probably understand this episode a great deal more if you go back and listen to part one first. Well, hello, Mr. Poe. I would like to talk first briefly about the use of the number seven in the story. Then you continue with the Mask of the Red Death. Now, Mr. Poe, I think it's extremely interesting that you chose the number seven for the number of rooms in the story. Throughout literature, the number seven is said to be a magical, profound, and even creative number, from the seven days of creation, to the seven wonders of the world, to the seven nations of Israel, to the seven deadly sins. In the Harry Potter series, the number seven is viewed as the most magical of all numbers. In perhaps the greatest play ever written, Shakespeare's Hamlet, the lead character has seven soliloquies all centered on the most important existential themes, the emptiness of existence, suicide, death, suffering, action, the fear of the beyond, the degradation of the flesh, the triumph of vice over virtue, the pride and hypocrisy of human beings, and the difficulty of acting under the weight of a thought which makes cowards of us all. The density of Hamlet's thought is extraordinary. Not a word is wasted. Every syllable and every sound expresses the depth of his reflection and the intensity of his emotion. Mr. Poe, in your philosophy of composition, you similarly communicate that every word in a story should be there for a reason, to establish an effect. Now, Shakespeare lived at a time when there were no dictionaries, and uh, he had a tremendous influence on the language we speak. We believe that one of the reasons that audiences went to his plays was to learn new words. While Poe wrote approximately 250 years later, when the English language was more established, he also shared a love of language and coined his share of new words. By the way, the seven soliloquies in Hamlet are, one, oh, that this two-sullied flesh would melt, act one, scene two, two, oh, ye host of heaven, act one, scene five, three, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, act two, scene two, four, to be or not to be, that is the question, act three, scene one, five, tis now the very witching time of night, act three, scene three, Six, and so a goes to heaven, act three, scene three. Seven, how all occasions do inform against me, act four, scene four. 
Of course, uh, there are the Seven Ages of Man monologue, as described by Shakespeare in As You Like It. For a great rendition of the Seven Ages of Man speech, check out the link in the show notes for this episode. The link is an excellent two-minute video done by the BBC of the Seven Ages of Man monologue with Benedict Cumberbatch speaking and various shots from BBC programs featuring Dustin Hoffman, Dame Judi Dench, Idris Eba, and Tom Higgleston, among others. Mr. Bartley, are you finished? Yes, Mr. Poe. Sorry if I got carried away. Then I will proceed with my story and an account of the celebration. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of the hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce seized their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused meditation. But when the echoes had finally ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their as if their own nervousness and folly was such, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion, and then after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embrace three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. Mr. Poe, that really sounds like your style. Not coming right out and saying a person is mad, but hinting that a character is definitely suffering from mental degradation. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. 
There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. It seems that the party-goers were dressed in frightening, but bright and colorful costumes that a madman would enjoy. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westerly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls, and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirringly on until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. Uh-oh! Nothing good ever happens at midnight in an Edgar Allan Poe story. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzes were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be surrounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole community a buzz or mama expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. No one is laughing now because all the guests are frightened and then horrified by the stranger. In an assembly of phantasms as such as I have painted, it may be well supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. 
In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-herited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. Mr. Poe, I like the use of the term out-herited Herod. Shakespeare used out-herited Herod in the play Hamlet to mean extremely cruel or tyrannical. And to out-herod Herod as a leader means to be so cruel or lacking empathy that one is more cruel than Herod. Herod was a king of Judea who, as you know, according to the Bible, ordered the death of many all babies in his attempt to kill the young Christ. Could Poe here be saying that death had arrived to conquer or be more cruel than Prince Prospero? Has Prospero met his match? There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. It seems that no one is laughing now. The guests are undeniably frightened by this stranger. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the chait. Mr. Poe, that's a great way of saying that the stranger's appearance is too real-looking, that he resembles a corpse who has been killed by the Red Death. And yet all this might have been endured if not approved by the mad revelers around but the mama had gone so far as to assure the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features on the face was disprinkled with a scarlet horror. Kind of like the scene in The Phantom of the Opera, where the lead character dresses like the mask of the Red Death and invades the celebration to everyone's horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzes, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or dislike, but in the next moment his brow reddened with rage. Mr. Poe, it seems initially Prince Prospero is very scared, but then becomes angry that the stranger is being such a downer and totally ruining the good times of his party. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It seems like Prince Prospero believes the stranger has gone way too far by dressing like a victim of the Red Death. As if a person today would go to a party dressed in protective clothes and an ICU bed as though they were an individual dying from the COVID-19 virus. Totally uncool. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, 
there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. Everyone is watching as the stranger comes near Prospero, but no one has the courage to stop him. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the murmur had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth a hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized them all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. Ah! There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable terror, horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness untenanted by any tangible form. This is the second time in the story that Poe has mentioned the various rooms with their specific colors, so be sure and check out Part 1 of Red Death for a description of what most scholars believe the color of each room means. And uh, for Mr. Poe, uh, it does look when the guests lunge for the stranger, he leaves nothing but his mask and shroud. Untenanted means unoccupied, like an empty, untenanted apartment. It doesn't have a tenant. The stranger left a shroud that was unoccupied by human form. You know, every time I read The Mask of the Red Death, I seem to find something new. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night. Mr. Poe, you must have paid attention to all those Episcopal services you attended as a boy. Like a thief in the night is from 1 Thessalonians in the Bible and refers to when something happens unexpectedly. And each one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. 
so the story ends with darkness and death triumphing, and everyone who believed that they could escape death are inevitably subject to death's power. Thank you, Mr. Poe. Thank you, Mr. Bartley. Excuse me while I take my leave. Sources include The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, Hamlet by William Shakespeare, The Tempest by William Shakespeare, The Annotated Tales of Edgar Allan Poe by Stephen Peathman, Poe Studies, Space and Symbol in the Tales of Edgar Allan Poe by Jared Hoffman, The Puzzle of the Color Symbolism in the Mask of the Red Death by Brett Zimmerman, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips, Edgar Allan Poe, Rhetoric and Style by Brett Zimmerman. Remember to check out the webpage for this podcast at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com for some audio, show notes, and a transcript. That's celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Now, the next episode of Celebrate Poe is one that I unfortunately promised before, and I apologize. This is about the War of 1812. Uh, to, be, to be honest, the War of 1812 is not uh, an extremely pivotal event in Poe's life, but the Poe family does have some fascinating connections to the conflict. And uh, Poe and I will discuss two seemingly different men from that period who I think are two of the most interesting people in American history. In conclusion, I think the case can be made that The Mask of the Red Death is Poe's darkest story, and that's saying a lot. His emphasis on the mysterious pestilence is scary, especially today. The leaders who insist on ignoring the disease and forgetting about all those not as financially well-off. The story uses dark fantasy to communicate that death ultimately has, in Poe's words, dominion over all. To be honest, Rereading this story during the current pandemic took me to a very dark place, something I do not want to experience again, even if it is on the page. But I thought about the first responders and the nurses, doctors, and other medical experts who constantly deal with the flow of patients, and how they experience death day after day, and some experts predict that the worst is yet to come. I realized that I want and even need to revisit The Mask of the Red Death when we chronologically get to 1842 in Poe's life in this podcast, maybe even sooner. When you hear this episode, the rollout of a vaccine for COVID should have begun. Now, there will certainly be problems along the way. There are with anything. But I hope that realistically, by this summer, life will be quite different. Not just a return to normal, whatever that is, but the ability to realistically correct the areas of our life that cry out for improvement. Death will always be with us as a natural part of life, but I have hope that next year the vaccine will be distributed and widely used, that our lives will not be ruled by a pandemic. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.